Art is built on what came before it, and music is no exception. New sounds are found by taking older ones, then putting a new spin on them. And every time that new spin latches onto the next generation of listeners, they'll take it, they'll adapt it for themselves, and then they'll add something new from other influences that they have, sometimes fusing genres together, other times making something completely new. Or in the case of a remix, an extension of the original. Since the mid-60s, already established music has been taken back in, re-edited, mutated, and otherwise tweaked, finding its way onto dance floors and even into record collections as bootleg tapes, dub plates, b-sides, and starting in 1971, remix albums. This week we're going to talk about the history of remixes and how they connect musicians not only to different genres and other bands and artists, but also to their fan bases and even new audiences. This is The Tim Gavin Show, a holistic look at music. As long as sound has been recorded, people have been playing around with it just to see what else it could do. You could even argue that some of the first remixes weren't on music, but on regular sounds. As both radio and magnetic tape recording started popping up the late 1920s and early 1930s, some composers at the time started talking about their potential to not only record their work, but use those recordings to make entirely new pieces. German art theorist Rudolf Armheim put out an essay called Radio in 1936, and one quote that really stood out to me, the rediscovery of the musicality of sound in noise and in language, and the reunification of music, noise, and language in order to obtain a unity of material is one of the chief artistic tasks of radio. Around that time period, a group of composers started splicing tape, playing around with recorded audio from either their music or found noises, and started making new works out of what they glued together. These first remixes were called Music Concrete. In many ways, this movement laid the groundwork for industrial noise and drone music as well. But that's just one of the small elements that got things going for remixes. Most modern remixes, at least in the sense of what we know them as, actually has its roots in dancehall music from Jamaica, where DJs and mixers would deconstruct and rearrange ska, reggae, rocksteady, and dub, and early on producers like Lee Scratch Perry and King Tubby would make stripped down super instrumental pieces of reggae songs and then add more studio effects, like isolating and looping parts of the songs, slowing down the music, adding echo and delay, and it made for some really great sounds. Disco music also added some crucial parts of modern remixes as well. Disco helped stretch out song length to keep people on the dance floor. DJs started wanting longer songs, but of course you could only put so much music on the popular format for singles at the time, 7-inch records. So eventually you started seeing records get pressed on 12-inch singles, making it easier for DJs to control. One of the first notable remixers around this time was a producer named Thomas Moulton, who started his career making mixtapes from the music from dance clubs in the late 60s. And then he got noticed by record companies and got hired to fix up pop records. And he ended up creating the disco mix by turning the first side of Gloria Gaynor's first album from three songs on three tracks into one 19-minute long continuous suite. Both the disco and dub remix cultures ended up meshing together through Jamaican immigrants into New York City, leading DJs like Cool Herc and Grandmaster Flash to bring in cutting and scratching techniques with turntables, and that ended up creating hip-hop. As disco was unjustly stamped out by popular culture by the early 80s, there were still dance music coming out, notably from synth-pop bands in the 80s who kept making 12-inch singles and featuring dance remixes of their tracks, 
as well as dub and reggae artists also remixing their tracks as well. And pretty soon, DJs would make remixes just by taking away all the instrumental stuff, making their own music, and then putting vocals from another song over top, which was used for the first time for a remix of Club Nouveau's It's a Cold Cold World. That was done in 1988 by Jesse Saunders, who is considered the originator of house music. And I found out that the name house music comes from a nightclub called The Warehouse, which was popular among the black and LGBT communities in Chicago. But remixing wasn't exclusive to dance music, though. Rock bands got in on it, too. Many punk, goth, industrial, alternative rock, and even some metal bands took notes from what remixers for dub and reggae were doing, and they started remixing their songs that way. But with all these remixes floating around, what is the best way for the fans to listen to them when not in a club? Well, you make an album, of course. And the first remix album wasn't done by dance, disco, or dub artists. It was actually done on a pop album. Harry Nilsson made what is considered the first remix album, Ariel Pandemonium Ballet. And this was after his albums, Everybody's Talking, and The Point started getting popular. And more people wanted to hear more of what Harry Nilsson had come up with. So his label, RCA, considered reissuing his first two out-of-print albums, Pandemonium Shadow Show and Aerial Ballet. But Harry Nilsson thought they sounded a little bit dated, so he ended up grabbing the master tapes, jumping into the studio, and freshened them up a little bit. It wasn't anything major done to the compositions, just some slight adjustments to the songs, making things sound a little bit fresher, EQing things a little bit higher, just little tiny things like that. And remixes like that are actually more common than you think. Sometimes they're marketed as remasters, but even though it is subtle, it's still a remix. Some examples of albums like this are the deluxe edition of Pearl Jam's first album, 10. Some editions have one disc with a remastered version and bonus tracks, but there's also a second disc where producer Brendan O'Brien took the master tapes, remixed the entire album, and tried something new with all the multi-tracks. And a lot of other older bands like Jethro Tull, Roxy Music, XTC, and Tears for Fears, they have all been remixed by Stephen Wilson in kind of a similar way. Another remix album like this that you might know is from the Beatles. 2003's Let It Be Naked, which got rid of Phil Spector's wall of sound mixing as well as the excerpts of studio chatter and some of the overdubs, replacing two short tracks, Maggie May and Dig It, with the B-side Don't Let Me Down. And while most of the Beatles did appreciate Spector's production, Paul McCartney felt that he didn't capture the group's intended stripped-down aesthetic that they wanted for that album. And this version is the form which McCartney considered closest to the original's intent to get back to their early rock and roll sound. Back in the late 2003, when this album got its world premiere, it also got a two-hour radio special featuring a 20-minute roundtable discussion featuring Alan Parsons, Sheryl Crow, Billy Joel, and Fred Durst for some reason. But back to the history of remixes. As the 70s and 80s rolled on, more and more artists started releasing remix albums, either collecting the 12-inch single versions of many songs, putting them all onto one package, or, most often, remix albums with dance or dub remixes serving as a companion to its original release. And nowadays, remix albums are also sought after by who is doing the remixes more than just what songs are being remixed. And that's where we start seeing even more connections in music. After Massive Attack released their second album, Protection, in 1994, they reached out to dub icon Mad Professor to remix one of the tracks for a single release. After hearing this remix, they like it so much that they asked him to listen to the rest of the album, 
see what else he wanted to do, which resulted in 1995's No Protection, which is a track-for-track -track reworking of most of Protection songs, and that album ended up becoming just as iconic to Massive Attack fans in its own right. Also, for a long time, whenever Nine Inch Nails released a studio album, usually some sort of collection of remixes wouldn't be too far off, whether it be an EP or sometimes even a full remix album, taking their music, mutating it even more. And these remix albums, they would usually feature work done by whoever was in the live band at the time, as well as other special guests like Butch Vig, Rick Rubin, Aphex Twin, New Order, and Coil, just to name a handful. One of the most iconic remix albums ever, though, comes from Linkin Park, 2002's Reanimation. After the success of Hybrid Theory, Mike Shinoda and Mark Stent brought in a ton of special guest rappers and producers to reconstruct Hybrid Theory into an entirely new album. Uh, some notable guest stars include Jay Gordon from Orgy, Jonathan Davis from Korn, The Dust Brothers, Sean C., Evidence, Stephen Carpenter from Deftones, uh, Cutmaster Kurt, Marilyn Manson, and Aaron Lewis. And these remixes are so popular that Linkin Park actually used to use parts of the album in their live shows, and it still remains one of the biggest selling remix albums of all time, behind only Blood on the Dance Floor from Michael Jackson, You Can Dance by Madonna, and Love by the Beatles. The internet is also one of the biggest catalysts for remixes, with places like YouTube and SoundCloud giving amateur producers a platform to show off what they've worked on and what they've tweaked in some of their favorite songs. Sometimes they'll get lucky and get clearance to give it a proper release, but other times producers will get issued a takedown notice. But copyright issues aside, some artists are a little more open. Bjork, Public Enemy, Death Grips, and Depeche Mode They've all at one point or another shared multi-track files with fans to remix for themselves. Nine Inch Nails embraced this the most, though. Not only giving fans multi-tracks, but also giving them the tools to remix their music and put it online. Back in 2007, they released a remix version of their album Year Zero. One disc on this was the album, but the other was a DVD, which had all the album's multi-tracks and a free version of Ableton Live. Then a few months later, they launched a website where fans could download more multi-tracks and upload their own. There were also a few other bands that hosted multi-tracks on Nine Inch Nails' remix site. Jane's Addiction, Saul Williams, How to Destroy Angels, and Street Sweeper Social Club, which was a collaboration between Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine and Boots Riley from The Coop. They also had some multi-tracks over there too. And while the original site was taken down back in 2016, dedicated fans have been hosting their own fan remix websites as well, which kind of serve the same function. But even though some multi-tracks are more inaccessible than others, it has not stopped people from finding ways to take these songs, remix them for themselves, copyright laws aside. And sometimes these new remixes involve putting two or more songs together. Now more than ever, mashups have taken over pop culture with some great, some bad, and some bad on purpose mashups getting millions and millions of listens online. But the producer that, in my opinion, sticks out well above the rest in making mashups is Neil Ciceriga. You might know him on YouTube. He's best known for making the Potter Puppet Pals series. But in the mid-2010s, he released a series of mashup albums that I call the Mouth Trilogy. Mouth Sounds was released in 2014, containing mostly mashups of different songs and mashing them up with All Star by Smash Mouth, along with some other mashups of Michael Jackson and Nirvana, Alanis Morissette in the theme song for Full House, and The Smashing Pumpkins and Loverboy. Mouth Silence is almost the opposite, also released in 2014, 
and it still has a lot of those mashups, but the only thing is none of them involve Smash Mouth. Then in 2017, Neil Cicerega released Mouth Moods, which completed the trilogy with 20 mashups, taking different remixing techniques from the previous two. And because of copyright issues, these albums aren't available on streaming platforms, but I do have a link in the show notes where you can download these albums for free, and I really think you should. You're going to hear a lot of really cool stuff. You're going to laugh a lot, too. A lot of these mashups, hilarious, and you really need to check them out. So, in a nutshell, that is a brief history of remixes, and I hope that this has kind of inspired you to seek out and check out some of these remixes for yourself. Listen to something new. Open your mind a little bit more. And now we're gonna get into still the number one. And then after that, I'm gonna do something a little different. I'm gonna get a little personal and talk about why I'm doing the Tim Gavin show in the first place. So for this week on still the number one, I'm gonna be flying solo, looking at this time last year. And I remember there were a lot of pretty good songs, a lot of kind of bad songs on the charts. So I'm kind of excited to go back revisit this chart and see what has aged well, even going on from just a year ago. Obviously, this time last year, Old Town Road, Lil Nas X featuring Billy Ray Cyrus, which is actually a remix. That is number one right now. Billie Eilish coming in at number two with Bad Guy. Khalid at number three with Talk. Now, obviously, Old Town Road definitely deserved that number one spot. It got huge really quick. It was actually still pretty catchy. I actually enjoy the song, and I like what the song represents, and I don't like that it got kicked off the country charts. I do feel that, at its heart, it is technically kind of a country song, especially having Billy Ray Cyrus on the remix, and it absolutely deserves its number one spot. It is a great song, very catchy, and I hope that it's not just a one-hit wonder. I hope Lil Nas X ends up having more of a career. But as we go further down the list, we start seeing more songs that I'm kind of surprised made it so big. Um, I don't care, Ed Sheeran and Justin Bieber. I know that one was pretty big for a little while, but I kind of feel like that Ed Sheeran album, Number Six Collaborations Project, I just feel like it didn't really measure up to his last few albums. Still a cool project in its own right, Really cool seeing Ed Sheeran experiment a little bit, but I feel like he didn't experiment enough. This just felt like him kind of phoning it in. But now he's going to be taking a break, and I'm actually really curious to see what he's going to come up with on his next album once he decides to come out of hiatus. And of course, we can all get back to normal music recording after COVID-19 passes through, if it does but it's gonna be really interesting to see what he comes up with. At number seven, we have Post Malone and Sway Lee with Sunflower, that song on the charts for a long time. And I think it's one of the best songs from both Post Malone and Sway Lee. I still love that track. And he even has the number six spot with Wow. Also pretty decent, but I do like Sunflower a little bit more. Uh, coming in at number eight, we have DaBaby with um, Suge or Suge. I feel bad because I haven't really heard that song, even though I was on radio. One of those songs that we never really got around to adding because it didn't quite chart as high up in Canada. Then at number nine, Chris Brown and Drake, No Guidance. First week on the charts here. And honestly, I don't think that song deserved its place on the charts at all. Not just because Chris Brown is a bad person, but also it is just a really dull track. I don't get what was so popular about it to begin with. 
Number 10, Sam Smith and Normani Dancing with a Stranger. I actually really love that song and pretty stoked to see it get a little bit higher. Never reached number one, but it did get into the top 10. I think this is going to be a song that people will enjoy for a while. If anything, it'd be pretty good for uh, slow songs at the dance club or something. Number 14, Taylor Swift and Brandon Urie with Me. Halsey at number 15. And Lizzo with Truth Hurts at number 17. If there was a song that I wish got a lot more popular, made it higher on the charts, it would have been Truth Hurts by Lizzo. I feel like all of her music that got rediscovered that year is just going to be what stands the test of time, and I'm just a fan of Lizzo in general. Starting to see a lot of country songs start to come in at the uh, bottom of the... um, the mid part of the charts at number 19, Blake Shelton with God's Country. Number 20, Whiskey Glasses, Morgan Whalen. And number 22, Beer Never Broke My Heart, which is the only country song on this chart that I actually like. Luke Combs, he's pretty good. Enjoy the stuff that I have heard of him. Katy Perry, number 28, Never Really Over. I kind of feel bad because that song I thought was actually pretty good, but you know, it's it's been a rough couple of years for Katy Perry, not quite getting the star power that she used to. Number 30, Tyler, the creator with Earthquake. And if you haven't listened to Igor yet, it is a great album. Earthquake is a great song. I actually wish that it got a little bit bigger up here in Canada and actually got some radio airplay because it is such a great song. And of course, number 34, still hanging in on the charts after 37 weeks, peaking at number one a while ago. It's Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper with Shallow. Great song. But now that Lady Gaga has more dancier music out, I am excited to hear more of that on the radio. So, Old Town Road, Lil Nas X, Billy Ray Cyrus, I still think it's the number one. Life has been pretty crazy right now, and I hope that by listening to The Tim Gavin Show, you've had a nice distraction from every negative thing that is going on in your world right now. And it's actually part of the reason why I made this podcast in the first place. Escape the troubles of the world by learning something kind of cool and kind of inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. It's nice not having to think about you-know-what for a while. You know what I mean? But another really cool thing is that I have learned a lot of really cool stuff. Each episode has me going down this wormhole online, finding new things to learn about, seeing all these beautiful and crazy sounds come together and get connected, and seeing exactly where they're from. I believe that every bit of music and media that we consume is all interconnected. And my motive behind finding these connections is to show that all music is real music. That each genre takes bits and pieces from what's around it, or what came before, to push music forward. And music is just as good as it is now, as it was 20 or 30 years ago, if not better. Because it builds on what was good in the past, and improves and adds something new. Plus, a lot of the bad music from back then also just gets forgotten about. Each instrument, each voice, and each bit of technology makes this music interesting and amazing. Growing up, I did have a pretty limited view of what quality music could be and what was considered the best of the best. But as I keep getting older and I keep finding more music, I love how diverse each genre can be and just how music was formed and how it all came together. We're halfway through Pride Month, in a pandemic that I don't know how long will last. And, of course, protests against police brutality are fresh in everyone's minds. I've also never been more aware of my privilege. I might not have a job right now, but I still have a roof over my head, and I'm able to weather the storm for the time being. And I wish everyone could have that kind of security. 
I also can't stand seeing people get unjustly discriminated against because of the color of their skin or who they are. At this point, the Tim Gavin Show is completely non-commercial. I'm not making any money off of this podcast. So, instead what I'm going to do is I'm going to urge you to seek cause that will benefit Black Lives Matter or any LGBTQA communities. This week's suggested listening is, of course, Neil Cesariga's Mouth Trilogy. Link to download that for free is in the notes. But I got some other remix albums for you to check out, too. Check out the remix by Lady Gaga, You Can Dance by Bandana, Pick a Dub from Keith Hudson, No Protection from Massive Attack and Mad Professor, and Your Zero Remix from Nine Inch Nails and Daft Club by Daft Punk. You can binge more episodes on Anchor or wherever you get podcasts. Make sure to like The Tim Gavin Show on Facebook, a link to socials and sources in the description. And we also have a link where you can join the conversation too. We want you to leave a voice message. Give us some feedback. Get your voice on the show by contributing to the conversations. We are definitely going to be looking back at some of these eventually and building on them as time goes on. Thanks for listening to The Tim Gavin Show. I'll talk to you again later. Hi, I'm Ashleen from The Feminist Critique. We are a movie podcast that takes a deep dive into some of your favorite movies to analyze them. Both me and my co-host, Gracie, talk about if the movie has aged well. We put them to both feminist and inclusive tests. Then we ask the most important question of them all. Is the movie good? Because a film doesn't necessarily have to be feminist or inclusive to be considered good, but it is kind of nice when those things are included. We have theme months, including May, which is Mel Brooks month. June is LGBTQ month. And then July is our favorite month of them all. Bad movie month. So check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.